Father, all of us here this morning do not have the same frame of mind or frame of heart. Some know you and there are others who think they do. And I pray, Father, that Jesus and thus Christmas would become something very new and something very real to us. In fact, that Jesus will become someone very real to us. That he would become from this day, from this Christmas forward, the absolute Lord of our lives. I pray, Father, that we would get insight as to who that child in the manger really was. More than just historical, as a historical figure, but someone who reigns in our lives and our hearts as the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before Christmas vacation, a little girl came home with what her teacher said was the most unusual Christmas picture she had ever seen painted. And so she rushed in the house and said, Mommy, my teacher said that I painted the most unusual picture of anyone in the class. And Mom looked at it and said, Indeed, this is a very peculiar kind of a picture. And she looked at it, not knowing exactly what it was, and she said, Well, honey, why did you draw everybody sitting in the back of an airplane? The girl said, well, mommy, that's the flight into Egypt. And she said, oh, I see the flight into Egypt, Mary and Joseph's flight into Egypt. She said, well, now, who is that mean looking guy up in the front of the plane? I said, mom, come on, don't you know anything? That's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> I see, the mom said. Very nice. Now, I see that you have painted here Joseph and you have Mary on the donkey. But who's that big fat man behind Mary? The little girl said in dismay, Come on, Mom, don't you know anything? That's round John Virgin. Now, we chuckle at something like that, but for the average person... They don't do much better when it comes to the true meaning of Christmas. In fact, for a lot of people, Christmas, Jesus born in a little manger somewhere out in Bethlehem is nothing more than a fable, a myth, because of the pictures that have been painted and also some of the songwriters that have, in a nice kind of a way, but they've done injustice to the Christmas story. Remember the song, Away in a Manger? In the second verse... Um says, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, come on. No crying, a baby makes no crying. We've taken the visitors from the east and made them into three kings. Scripture didn't say there was three of them, so there was a group of them. We've even given them names. And now our manger scenes even have a drummer boy at each one, which is not found in the scripture at all. And we don't need to settle for some romantic kind of an idea of who Jesus was and how he came in the whole manger scene. In fact, I doubt that many of us really know exactly how it was at that manger scene. At least, we don't depict it very well in our own. Years ago, I heard of a tragic story in Boston. How that there was a family who was having a christening for their baby, newborn baby, and they were inviting people over. It was the winter time, and they came, and about a half an hour into the party, 
the mother went upstairs to get the little baby and bring him down, went to the bed, the large bed upon which the baby was sleeping. And there the people had put their coats who had come into the party and she made a tragic discovery that underneath all of the coats of the people who had come to the party lay the baby smothered to death. And you know what? That perfectly illustrates what the world has done to Christmas. We have smothered Jesus underneath all of the tinsel and the trees and the wrapping paper and the malls and the credit card bills. We've smothered the real meaning of Christmas. Isaiah shows for us 600 years before it happened exactly who this little baby in the manger was going to be. And this is written at a very dark period in human history, by the way. 600 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah speaks of the first coming of Jesus as a baby and the second coming of Jesus as the king of kings. It was a period when King Ahaz was the ruler of Israel. And in the midst of that dark reign of history comes the prediction of the light of the world. And the light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know... If I was asked to paint a picture of world history, that'd be very easy. Now, I'm a crummy painter, but that kind of a picture would be a snap. First of all, I'd take a big canvas, and I'd get a gallon of the blackest paint I could, and I'd just dump it on top of the canvas. And I'd paint the blackest background I could. That's world history. Then I'd take a little white paint, tiny little brush, and I'd put a little dot in the corner, and I'd have streams of light shining throughout that picture. That's Jesus coming into the world. In the midst of a very dark world, the King has come. Now it says in verse 1, Nevertheless, the gloom will be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. But you have broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, obviously, this was to be no ordinary child. Notice the remarkable names given to a baby. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Father of eternity or everlasting father, prince of peace. No ordinary child. And because this was spoken of 600 years before the event, it showed that God planned this whole event. Years ago, I think in the 70s, 
A guy by the name of Hugh Schoenfield wrote a book that everybody bought like crazy. It was called The Passover Plot. He showed how that, the whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross and the betrayal was all a plot. That he planned it with his disciples, all of the events to have them fit into the scripture and that the whole death of Christ and staged resurrection, as he put it, was just a plot. What a silly book. Of course it was a plot. But it was a plot before the foundations of the world. God had this thing planned out before Schoenfield was even born. Before he created the heavens and the earth, he predicted a son, a child, who would be mighty God, who would come as the Savior and would eventually rule the world. Now, there are several phrases that describe who Jesus really is in those two verses. And we've broken it down into four general sections. First of all, this shows us his humility and his identification with us. Notice it says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And yet at the same time, the verse opens up by saying, unto us a child is born. In other words, a child will be born as a baby and his name will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Which speaks to us, number one, of the humanity of Jesus, and secondly, of the deity of Jesus, that he was God. Fully God and fully man. Now, some people have said that Jesus was not a historical figure, that he was a myth, he was a phantom. But in reality, he was a real historical figure. For it says in Luke, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, not concept, and laid him in a manger. Some people have looked at the scripture and said that Christ is simply a symbol of the higher Christ self-consciousness. Well, he was a real historical figure. Unto us, a child is born. But his name is called the mighty God, which in Hebrew is El Gibor. The one to whom all power is given. This little baby will be the omnipotent God in human flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you flip back a page or so and look at chapter 7, there's another interesting, intriguing prophecy concerning him in verse 14 of chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, folks, that's Christmas in a nutshell. God with us. Someone said Christmas is simply God walking down the stairs of heaven with a baby in his arms. Emmanuel. Fully human, fully God. He will be called God with us. Now, Talk about being incognito. God had the ultimate incognito disguise, if you will. The mighty God wrapped in human skin. Divinity united with dust. Majesty and the mundane put together. And this has blown the minds of people for 2,000 years. No theologian or layperson can adequately explain God in human flesh. But he was God in human flesh, fully human and yet fully divine. 
I have often wondered the kind of things that went through Mary's mind when Jesus was born. Who is he? I mean, the angel spoke to me about him, but exactly who is he? How do I, what do I call him? How do I relate to this child of mine? What did she think as he was growing up? One person wrote a book and entitled a very short chapter, 25 Questions for Mary. What was it like watching him pray? How did he respond when he saw other kids giggling during the service at the synagogue? When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being led to slaughter, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone that you couldn't hear? How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever try to count the stars with him and succeed? Did he ever come home with a black eye? How did he act when he got his first haircut? Did he have any friends by the name of Judas? Did he do well in school? Did you ever have to scold him? Did he ever ask a question about the scripture? What do you think he thought of when he saw a prostitute offering to the highest bidder the body that he made? Did he ever get angry when someone was dishonest with him? Did you ever catch him pensively looking at the flesh on his own arm while holding a clod of dirt? Did he ever wake up scared? Who was his best friend? When someone referred to Satan, how did he act? Did you ever accidentally call him father? What did he and his cousin John talk about as kids? How did his other brothers and sisters understand what was happening? And finally, did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? If you were God and you wanted to reveal yourself to this planet, would you have your representative born in a cave? If you were God and you wanted to reveal yourself to this planet, would it be to Bethlehem? Wouldn't it be to Rome, Jerusalem, Los Angeles, some metropolitan area? And yet God had his son, God in human flesh, born in a manger in the middle of nowhere, in Bethlehem. Now here the angels have been practicing for thousands of years for this predicted event. The Messiah is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, and they had the harmonies down, three-part harmonies sounded great. Finally, God said, Gabriel, hit it. And they looked out, and there were six shepherds in the audience. Come on, this is it? This is the place you picked? Why did God have his son born in Bethlehem and come as a human being in such an obscure kind of a way? The answer is summed up in one word. Identification. God became flesh to humble himself and to identify with you and me, because you and I are flesh. And so God became flesh 
to identify with us. You and I live in a box. A box that has walls of time and space. Outside of our box is the supernatural realm. You and I cannot communicate with the supernatural apart from God revealing himself to us. We're limited by time and space. Every now and then, man says, let's crawl out of the natural box and reach the supernatural. And every time he does that, a man-made religion is born. God has always communicated to man within this limited box of which he cannot transcend. He sent prophets. He sent messengers throughout history. And finally, God crawled into the box to become a human being to relate to the people who were there, the ultimate manifestation of God. For it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, listen carefully, you and I do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted in every point that we were, yet without sin. He is a high priest who can relate to you and me. And can, he experienced what we experienced. He felt like a man feels. He knew what it was to be cold, to be hot, to feel pain, to be hungry. Ultimately, he died like a man. And he can relate to you and to me. I found something interesting early on about my little boy, Nathan. I come in the house, I'm six foot five, you know, he's just a little guy. He looks up at a giant. I come home and go, Nathan? And he hears my voice booming through the house and he responds to my voice, Daddy? But you know what the best response was? Is when I got on my knees and looked straight in the eye with him. I'm on his level. All of a sudden a whole new relationship happened. He jumped on me, grabbed my neck and wanted to wrestle with me. He wouldn't do that before. I was too big for him. I was out of touch. On his level, he could understand me. I became his buddy. God became man to identify with you and I, to sympathize with you and me. And when Jesus came as a little baby and he grew up in Galilee and he went to Jerusalem, he revolutionized people's ideas about God. People have the craziest ideas about God, the weirdest concepts of God. And today people have weird concepts about God. The average person has his own idea. Well, I picture God like this. Jesus came to do away with all that nonsense because the Jews saw God as distant and awesome, which he is, sort of. The Greeks saw God as unable to touch the feelings of humanity, therefore apathetic and so detached that he doesn't care. Jesus came into a world that saw God as distant and untouchable, and he became a man to touch the pain and the nerve of humanity. Revolutionized the whole concept of God. He became touchable. God in human flesh. Years ago, in Chicago, a man by the name of Booth Tucker was doing a series of meetings preaching on the sympathy of Jesus Christ and the love of God. And as he was preaching on that, in one of the meetings... Afterwards, a man came up and said, Mr. Tucker, if your wife died like my wife just died and my and your children cried out at night for their mother. Like my kids cry out for their mother every night, you'd never talk about God being a God of love and Jesus being sympathetic. And he walked away. Booth Tucker was just standing there after he was rebuked by this unbeliever. 
Within a week, Booth Tucker's wife was killed in a train accident. And Booth Tucker himself did the funeral. And as he stood up by the casket, he looked into the casket. He had tears in his eyes. And he said, you know what? A week ago, a man came up to me and said, Mr. Tucker, if your wife died like my wife died, if your kids were crying out in the middle of the night for their mom like my kids were, you'd never be able to talk about the love and sympathy of God. If that man is here, I want him to know that Jesus Christ speaks comfort to my heart right now. My heart is broken. My heart is crushed. He was weeping. But at the same time, there's a song in my heart, and Jesus put that song there. And if this man is here and listening to me, I want him to come up and meet me. And afterwards, the man came up and knelt by the casket of Booth Tucker's wife and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. God is sympathetic because Jesus became a man to identify. He's at the right hand of God right now, not as a figurehead, as your representative. And you know, after he rose from the dead, he still had scars in his hands. In fact, he said, Thomas, come on, put your finger in my wounds. I suffered, you can see it, and I'm alive. And Jesus ascended into heaven with the scars still on his body. And they're still there today. For in the book of Revelation, as John is looking around and the angel says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is Jesus. John was looking for him and couldn't find him. And then he says, But I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And that was Jesus. Pictured as a lamb still bearing the marks of crucifixion. So today, when you pray and you cry out to God because you're going through a trial and you say, Oh God, I'm suffering. I'm in pain. He can stretch out his scarred hand and say, I know what it feels like. He's not detached. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's why Jesus became flesh. God and human flesh to identify with us. Now we get to the next phrase in chapter 9, which speaks of the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. He was sent as a gift to the world, for it says, Unto us a son is given. See the change? It doesn't say a baby is born or child is born, but it's a son now. And the son is not born, he's given. Very reminiscent of John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 6 when it says a son is given. In Hebrew it would literally be unto us a son has been appointed or set in a special place. God gave his son to the world. That's the ultimate Christmas gift by the way. God gave his son and appointed him a set place as a savior. And from the moment that little baby was born in a manger, his life was marked for death. And that child grew up knowing that the whole reason he existed as a man was to die on a cross. The whole purpose of him coming was to die, was to shed his blood. That was his goal, that was his theme in life, to be the savior of the world. For the angel said, you will call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. I'm sure Joseph is scratching his head saying, what does this mean? Save his people from their sins. What does that mean? Mary found out later on when she saw her son dying on the cross, 
the Son is given as a Savior. Now, why a Savior? Because that's what the world needs. Every year we get Christmas cards like you do. My favorite Christmas card I've ever received says this. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, and so God sent us a Savior. William Barclay used to say, There was no room in the inn, which is symbolic of the way Jesus' life was to be lived. The only place for Jesus was on the cross. The only room for Jesus that was ever found was on the cross, and that's where he died. You know what that means, folks? That salvation, now listen carefully, is not a code of ethics. It is not a religious system. It's a person. Salvation is a person. So many people think that salvation is a code of ethics. A set of rules. No, I keep the rules. I'm religious. I go to church. I do good things. That's not salvation. It just means you're a great person. Congratulations. Doesn't buy you heaven because salvation is a person. Jesus did not say, my teachings are the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. He never said, as many as received my code of ethics, they were granted the right to become children of God. Nope. As many as received him personally, they were given the authority to become the children of God. And it doesn't matter what code of ethics you follow or how nice of a person you are. If you don't know Jesus, you're not saved. He came to save people from their sins. A son is given. Why? To point us to the truth. 